0: All right, we are continuing our study of the letter of 1 Corinthians here on the Listener's Commentary. In fact, we're nearing the end of that letter. It has been quite a journey through this really important letter of Paul. And in this session, we are going to be looking at the second half of chapter 15, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 29 through 58. And just to review where we're at in the flow of thought and in the context of the letter, Chapter 15 begins a new topic, a new issue that is troubling the church in Corinth. And that is that some in the church in Corinth are rejecting the Christian hope in the resurrection from the dead by saying there's no such thing as a resurrection from the dead. And Paul has said that that premise is proved false by the fact of Jesus' resurrection. If there is one resurrection from the dead, your whole premise is completely false. And so, in the first half of this discussion, the first half of chapter 15 that we looked at in our last recording, Paul argues that the resurrection of the dead is central to Christian faith, central to Christian living, and that it's supported by the fact of Jesus' resurrection. And Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits, which means it promises more to come. So when Christ returns, those in Christ will be resurrected themselves. And then the culmination of Jesus' redemptive work will arrive, and he'll hand over the kingdom to God his Father. That's where we left off in our last recording. So at this point, what Paul does is he's going to give two more arguments really supporting the idea of the resurrection from the dead. So he argued very tightly from the resurrection of Jesus up to this point. And now he gives what are sort of like almost kind of ad hoc arguments. They're kind of just extra quick rhetorical questions to drive home the point that he made in the first half of the chapter. And the point these two uh, arguments make is that the Corinthians and Paul act like they believe in the resurrection from the dead. They act like the resurrection is a real thing. First, he says to the Corinthians, otherwise, like if there is no resurrection of the dead, that's what he means for otherwise, if this isn't true, if the fact of Jesus' resurrection does not demonstrate our future resurrection, otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? Now, we don't know who these people are and why they're being baptized or immersed for the sake of the dead. There has been a lot written about this by scholars and commentators and uh, Bible teachers The problem is, is this is all we have to go on, verse 29, which means there's virtually nothing here to go on. So developing any lengthy ideas about it is really pure speculation. Developing whole doctrines and practices based on this verse um, is almost complete speculation. Paul neither commends this practice or condemns this practice. He just merely calls attention to it to make a rhetorical point. What's that point? Well, the point is, look, if resurrection is not a reality, then this act that some people have done makes zero sense. Now, there have been a variety of suggestions for what practice Paul is referring to in this verse, and I'll actually put a document in the study hub with some of the main suggestions. It might take me a little bit to get there, but eventually it'll get in the study hub. But one of the most straightforward and best suggestions, in my opinion, is that there had been some people in the Corinthian church who had decided to pledge themselves to Jesus and become his followers upon the death of a believing family member or perhaps a close friend, a loved one. And that loved one was a Christian. And when they died, the way they died and the fact of their death and the conversations they had had leading up to their death motivated this loved one of theirs to say, I want I want to see them again. I want to I believe in the resurrection and I want to get baptized and follow Jesus too. and And so that may be what Paul is referring to here. But again, we just don't really know. and at this point in time being so far removed from what was going on in the Corinthian church, we could never really know for sure what Paul is referring to. But Paul's point is clear. It's simply to to point out how this practice makes zero sense, if there is no resurrection from the dead. Then the second ad hoc argument is essentially this. Why give up our life to follow and serve Jesus if there's no resurrection from the dead? In other words, Paul's single-minded devotion to Jesus and risking his life for Jesus and preaching the resurrection, that in and of itself is evidence for the resurrection. Here's what Paul says, verse 30. Why are we also in danger every hour? If Paul hadn't seen Jesus and wasn't convinced beyond the shadow of a doubt that, in fact, Jesus was raised from the dead, why would Paul and the other apostles face danger every hour for Jesus' sake? I mean, in Paul's case, he was an opponent. He was uh, a persecutor of Christians and tried to destroy the church. If he wasn't, like, deeply convinced that, no, Jesus is really alive and raised from the dead— then his actions of completely changing course and now not persecuting the church, but being persecuted for it and for this belief in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead It makes zero sense. If Paul wasn't convinced that because of Jesus' resurrection, that he himself also would be raised, then why in the world would Paul risk his life for the sake of Jesus? He goes on in verse 31 and says, I affirm, brothers and sisters, by the boasting in you which I have in our Lord Jesus Christ, that I die daily. In other words, every day. Paul faced death for the message of Jesus' resurrection. He never knew uh, what would come at him that day. And so he had to be prepared to die every single day. What gave Paul the courage to do that? Well, he knew that Christ was raised from the dead. And if Christ was raised, then Paul himself also would be raised. And so that's what made it possible for him to die daily. In fact, Paul even references a specific recent event in his history in verse 32. He says, If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what good is that to me? Paul is writing this letter to the Corinthians from Ephesus. And so at some point in Ephesus, he apparently had a a dangerous encounter with wild beasts. We don't know exactly what that means. Acts does not record this event that Paul mentions here. And so we don't know exactly what was going on, but it sounds like perhaps Paul was putting it in the arena with beasts or something. And we just don't know exactly what that was. Um, and so his point, however, is that if, if, if he only did that because of human motivation, what good is that, right? Paul's conclusion? If there is no resurrection, then why bother? If there is no resurrection, why take up our cross and follow Jesus? He says in the second half of verse 32, if the dead are not raised, like let's eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Like If the dead aren't raised, why fight with wild beasts? Why risk our life? Why deny ourselves in order to serve Jesus? Because what's going to happen is we're just going to die, and that's the end. This actually leads Paul then to challenge the Corinthians on their discipleship to Jesus. Uh, presumably, their weak view of resurrection was showing up in the moral compromise that Paul's already dealt with at some points in this letter. And so Paul then turns directly to address them in verse 33 and says, Don't be deceived bad company corrupts good morals. In the immediate context and immediate situation in Corinth, what this refers to is those who have influenced some of the Corinthians to stop believing in the resurrection. That's the bad company. Uh, And they are corrupting you and they're corrupting your morals. And so Paul says in verse 34, sober up morally and stop sinning. Like, come on, get your head in the game. Um, Be level-headed is the idea of sober up morally. Like, Be sober minded, be level headed, get your head in the game, morally speaking, and stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. What Paul's point is is that their own character and their own behavior are being corrupted by keeping company with people who have convinced them of the foolishness of the idea of resurrection. And most likely, it's people outside the church that Paul's thinking of, people who have no knowledge of God. They have no knowledge of God. They have no knowledge of God's power. They have no knowledge that uh, human bodies matter to the creator God, and he plans to resurrect them from the dead. So those people who have no knowledge of God, they're the bad company that some of the Corinthians are keeping company with, and that has led them to believe that there is no resurrection from the dead, and thus has corrupted their moral lives. And all of this reminds us that the idea of the resurrection in the future actually has implications for how we live here in the present. That the idea of the resurrection from the dead is not just something out there that has no bearing on the here and now. In fact, not having a solid belief in the resurrection weakens our faithfulness and obedience to Jesus. And that's Paul's concern for the Corinthians. And so, Paul urges them to get this figured out. And Paul has demonstrated that the resurrection of the dead is critical to discipleship to Jesus, that it's central to the Christian faith, that it's guaranteed by Jesus' own resurrection. So now what he does is he turns to a second idea that apparently is being used to support the contention that there is no resurrection from the dead. What is that second idea? Well, it's the nature of the resurrected body. Apparently, those in the church who are rejecting the idea of the resurrection of the dead are contending that the idea of a resurrection body in and of itself is just foolish and it makes no sense. Like, what kind of body would it be? Why would you want a body, a a resurrection body for all of your life after death? Anyhow, like, since the idea of a resurrection body makes no sense, In their mind, it supports their belief that there is no resurrection of the dead. So Paul now addresses this follow-up issue and discusses the nature of the resurrection body. So he says in verse 35, someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? Paul is assuming that this is the follow-up question from those who reject the resurrection of the dead. Paul has just argued strongly for the fact of the resurrection. So now he imagines this follow up question that someone will ask, presumably because he knows this is part of their thinking. This is one of their objections to the resurrection. So, how does Paul respond to this? Like, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? And Paul's response is, verse 36, you fool. You fool. Now think of that as a fool in the Old Testament sense, such as in the Proverbs or in the Psalms, where the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Or the fool is the one who rejects the wise and good way of God. So Paul sees this objection coming from the nature of the resurrection body as deriving from someone who does not understand the power or the wisdom of God. And what Paul then does is, after saying, you fool, he then uses a series of analogies to help them and us understand the resurrection body. He uses the analogy of a seed, and from that analogy, he makes the point of a small seed that dies and then comes up as something related to the seed, but far more glorious than it. Then he'll use an analogy of different kinds of bodies in the universe and the world. And he uses that analogy to make the point that the kind of body something has must fit the nature and realm of its own particular existence. So a series of analogies to help them and us understand the resurrection body. The first analogy is that of the seed. And he says this, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. So you sow a seed, you plant a seed in the ground, that seed has to die, and then it grows into something new. And he continues in verse 37 and says, and that which you sow, that seed, you do not sow the body which it is to become, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or something else. And so The plant not only is small and dies before it becomes what it's going to become, but the plant that derives from it doesn't look like the little tiny seed. It's related to it, of course, but it's bigger and greater and something more than the seed itself. And then he says in verse 38, but God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. And so each particular kind of seed grows into a new kind of body. A wheat seed grows into a wheat plant. A corn seed grows into a corn plant just as God designed it. So that's the analogy of the seed. Then What Paul does in verse 39 and following is uses a series of analogies of different kinds of bodies, bodies that are fitted for their proper environment and their kind of life. And so he says in verse 39, all flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one, one flesh of mankind. So there's one human kind of flesh, another flesh of animals, another flesh of birds and another flesh of fish. In other words, human bodies are designed and made for where and how humans live. Animal bodies for where and how animals live. Bird bodies for the sky and bird life. Fish bodies for water and fish life. And not only that, But there's things like the sun, moon, and stars. Those are like different kinds of bodies too. So he says in verse 40, there are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is one and the glory of the earthly is another. He has in mind physical earthly stuff, and then the material bodies of things like the sun, moon, and stars. So he says in verse 41, there is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. They're all different. They all have different size and brightness and radiance and life and all of that. And the point of verses 40 and 41 is, even with like planets and stars and the moon and all that, They have different bodies, they're made differently for their own unique kind of existence. And so the whole point of verses 39 through 41, this analogy of these different kinds of bodies, is that God has created all different kinds of bodies, all of which are appropriate to the specific created thing. Each body is designed just right for its own unique and particular existence. And then he draws out the implication of these analogies with regard to the resurrection body. So he says in verse 42, so also is the resurrection of the dead. Just like the analogy of the seed to a greater and more glorious body, just like the analogies of different kinds of bodies perfectly designed for their own particular existence, it will be the same with the resurrection body. That's his point in verse 42. And then he goes on and says, it is sown... A perishable body, but it's raised an imperishable body. Do you hear the connection with the seed analogy? It's sown. It's like this current perishable body is like going to be like the seed planted in the ground that's going to come up as something now imperishable and more glorious. It is sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. Listen to all the descriptives of the current dying human body. He describes it as perishable, dishonorable. That is, it lacks glory due to the fact that it's dying. Uh, weak, uh, Right? We know that the human body gets sick, it breaks down, right? It's weak and natural. And the word natural is literally psukakos in Greek, and it's actually an adjective that comes from the noun for soul or life, psuke. And it actually derives from Genesis chapter 2, where God breathed into Adam and he became a living soul. Paul's actually going to draw out the Genesis 2 connection of natural or psuchikos very shortly. And check out the descriptives here of the future resurrection body. It's imperishable, it's glorious, it's powerful, and it's spiritual. And the word spiritual in verse 44, stands in contrast to the word natural. Remember, natural is soulish from the word for soul. Spiritual here doesn't mean immaterial. He's actually going to describe it as a body. It doesn't mean immaterial. It means something that's not uh, soulish. It's something more than uh, what it was before, and he'll describe that here in what follows. So he says, if there is a natural body, a soulish body, there is also a spiritual body. Both adjectives here describe bodies. And so the spiritual body doesn't mean a disembodied and not physical, an immaterial something. That's not the point. It's a particular kind of physical. It is a spiritish body, if you will. Um, These two pairs contrast the nature of the two bodies. The current body is solus, psychikos. The future body is spiritual, that is, of the spirit. It's not immaterial. The point is, it's supernatural. It's empowered by the very spirit of God. So just like a bird body is perfect for a bird's existence, and a fish body is perfect for a fish's existence, so too the resurrection body is designed just right for eternal everlasting, supernatural life in the world to come. That's the point. Then he goes on and develops this further from the contrast with Adam, who became a living soul, to Christ, who was resurrected from the dead and thus becomes a life-giving spirit. This is what he says, verse 45. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living person. That is a living soul. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, right? That's what he's referring to. And it's this passage that Paul has in mind that motivates him to use the word soulish to describe the current human body that is dying. It's a soulish body. Adam became a living soul. But for Christ, there's something more glorious and greater that came out of the tomb. And so he says, the last Adam was a life giving spirit. And Paul has already Contrasted Adam and Christ in this passage in 1 Corinthians 15. He said that in Adam all die, and in Christ all will be made alive. And so Paul's already made that contrast. And so here he's using the the phrase last Adam to refer to Jesus because, like Adam, is the head of soulish bodies. Jesus is the head, the beginning of a new redeemed humanity in which they will be given bodies of the spirit. And so by noting the contrast between Adam and Christ here, Paul makes the point that the resurrection body of Jesus is the pattern of the resurrection body promised to those in Christ. And so he draws this out in what follows. Look at verse 46. He says, however... The spiritual is not first, but the natural, the soulish one. Then comes the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. Adam was made out of the the earth, the ground, right? And God formed him out of the dust of the ground and then breathed into him the breath of life. And that's how he became a living soul. So the first man, Adam, is from the earth. He's earthy. The second man, Jesus, is from heaven. And the implication is, therefore, he is heavenly, spiritual. He's got heavenly life within him. And so just remember that what these verses are doing is drawing out the contrast between Adam and the body his creation promised to future human beings, and Christ and the body that his resurrection promises to human beings in Christ. So Adam, he's first. He is soulish, natural, and he's earthy, made of the dirt. Christ, he's spiritual, that is, of the Spirit. He's from heaven and thus heavenly. And so he says in verse 48, As is the earthy one, so also those who are earthy. That is, those in Adam are earthy. As is the heavenly one, so also are those who are heavenly. Those in Christ are heavenly. They have heavenly life promised to them, given to them, flowing through them. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we've been in Adam and we've borne the the natural soulish body that dies of the earthy person, Adam, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. Someday at our resurrection, notice future tense, we will bear that image. Our resurrection body will be like Jesus' resurrection body. So, by relocating from Adam And into Christ, we change what kind of human being we are, and we change what we will become when we die, that there is a future resurrection promised to those in Christ. So in Adam, we are earthy and we die. But in Christ, we are heavenly and we will live. By virtue of our birth... We entered into Adam and thus bear his image by virtue of our second birth, our new birth and entering into Christ, we will bear his image. Here specifically meaning the image of his resurrection body. And so the resurrection of Jesus and his resurrection body demonstrates the nature and the certainty of our future resurrected bodies. Just as it demonstrated that there is, in fact, a resurrection from the dead, so too the resurrection of Jesus demonstrates the reality of resurrected bodies. And why is a resurrected body even necessary? Well, because a body must fit the particular kind of life it was dev- designed for, right? That's what the analogies above show. So, Paul says in verse 50, Now, I say this, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. The full kingdom of God that is to come in the future is such a state of life that the current earthy soulish flesh and blood doesn't fit. It's perishable and it can't inherit an imperishable realm. It doesn't fit that realm. That realm requires an imperishable body. Paul goes on and says in verse 51, Behold, I'm telling you a mystery. We will not all sleep. That is, we'll not all die when Jesus returns, but we will all be changed. That is, everybody in Christ is going to be changed. They're going to be transformed into a new glorious body fit for a new glorious existence. And that will happen whether we die before Christ comes or whether we're alive when Christ comes. Either way, we're all going to be changed. It's going to happen like this, Paul says in verse 52. He says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. So whether we're dead when Christ returns, whether we're alive when Christ returns, every single person in Christ is going to be given this new glorified body that is perfectly fit for the realm of the eternal existence, an imperishable body. And then Paul restates why we're going to be given this imperishable body in verse 53. He says, for this perishable, this current perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this Mortal must put on immortality because the world we're entering into at that point is immortal and imperishable, and we need a body that is fit to that kind of existence. And so he he says in verse 54 But when this perishable does that, when it puts on the imperishable, and when this mortal puts on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? This will be part of the final, ultimate victory. The last enemy, death, will finally be defeated, and we will become imperishable and immortal, and death will be defeated once and for all. Here in verses 54 and 55, Paul calls to mind two Old Testament passages. The first one is Isaiah 25:8, when he says death has been swallowed up in victory. That comes from Isaiah 25:8. And in that passage, Isaiah looks forward to a time when God will wipe away the tears from his people's eyes and will swallow up death forever. And although Isaiah doesn't use the word victory there in chapter 25, the entire context paints a picture of the salvation and the victory of God's people. And so that's what Paul says here. Death has been swallowed up in victory. The second passage in verse 55 here comes from Hosea 13, verse 14. Um, Hosea 13, 14 reads, Death, where are your thorns? Sheol, where is your sting? Paul has adapted and modified that for his purpose here. In its original context there in Hosea, it's a context of Israel's sin and consequent punishment and death coming as that consequent punishment. But in the very next paragraph in Hosea, it looks ahead to God's redemption and restoration. Well, Paul knows in Christ that redemption and uh, restoration has begun. And so knowing that, he now looks ahead to the end of death and basically taunts it, like trash talks death as a defeated enemy. He says, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? And that's why Paul goes on to say this in verse 56. He says, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. This just echo some of the things Paul writes elsewhere in his his letters when he says, for example, the wages of sin is death. That is, it's sin that gave death its entrance into the world, and so it's what gave, uh, what led to the sting of death. And and even though God gave the law to Israel and it's good, the law did not finally and fully solve the problem of sin. In fact, Israel broke the law and violated the covenant, and. Uh, suffered its consequences, which is why Isaiah and Hosea actually wrote the things they did and looked forward to a great day of salvation when God would actually do for humanity and for Israel what the law itself couldn't do. And God's done that in Jesus. Through his death and resurrection, the day of redemption has come. And so Paul can celebrate all of that in verse 57 by saying, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through, through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the guarantee of our victory over death. That's the uh, guarantee of our resurrection is that uh, sin has been defeated. The law has reached its culmination point in Jesus, and now Jesus is the one who brings redemption and resurrection to the world. And so he is uh, the guarantee of our victory over death. And since that's the case, since we know uh, that we will be raised, how should we live in the present? Well, Paul ends Chapter 15, and this defense of the resurrection was really a call to action. And so he says in verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be firm, immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in in the Lord is not in vain. When he says be firm, that's the idea of steadfast, right? Like you're strong, you're planted, you're rooted, you're steadfast. When he says immovable, right? That's kind of like the follow-up, like your roots go down deep and you are rock solid and immovable. And then he says, always excelling in the work of the Lord. That word excelling is the idea of abounding or overflowing, that it bubbles out of you to serve the Lord. Why? Because you know that your labor, your toil, your fatigue and exhaustion in the Lord, it's not empty. It's not pointless. It's not in vain. Because someday, You're going to be raised from the dead and it will all be worth it. And so, as we wrap up this discussion of the resurrection of the dead here, the first thing this this chapter really has to remind us is that there is a glorified, resurrected body promised to all of those in Christ. We're not going to be disembodied spirits floating around on a a cloud with a, a halo on our head playing a harp all day. That's not the Christian hope. Um, Even going to heaven when we die, uh, which is part of our hope, but it's not the end destination. The end destination is a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And it will be an imperishable and immortal world. And thus we need an imperishable and immortal body fitted perfectly for it. And so that's our ultimate destiny, is to live forever in a new earth with a glorified, resurrected human body. And then a second thing that comes right out of the end of this in verse 58 is, the more certain we are of that, the more capable we are of hope-infused work for the Lord. Uh, We can wear out our uh, earthly soulish bodies now because we know there's a new body coming. We can serve Jesus wholeheartedly now because we know that our work will not be wasted in the Lord. And so in view of the resurrection, we live faithfully for Jesus. We live wholeheartedly for Jesus. We serve Jesus however we can to the best of our ability because we know that there really is a resurrection from the dead. Hey, thanks for checking out this session on the Listener's Commentary on the New Testament. The Listener's Commentary is a listener-supported, crowd-funded Bible teaching ministry that's made possible by the generous support of people just like you. So thanks a ton for your support. And if you want to join the team of supporters, there's a link down in the notes below, or you can swing over to listenerscommentary.com. You can click the Give button. It'll take you to a page where you can put in an amount. You can click a little box that says, Make This a Monthly Donation, or you can give a one-time donation. And all those donations are received in partnership with World Family Mission, a registered nonprofit. You can also support the Listener's Commentary through the Study Hub by... Setting up an amount there, and that'll give you access to uh, documents like the one I'll put in on baptism from the dead uh, and things of that sort. And there are other resources in there as well, like my online courses and a number of things that will help you dig in and learn and live the Bible. So thanks a ton for your support.